<clears throat> All right, good morning, everyone. Um, happy November 5th. So we're, uh, we're finishing up um, Mark 10 this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 32 through 52. And um, we're not just at the end of chapter 10, we're actually at the end of uh, the kind of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And um, it's been a bit of a, a winding road, as you recall. Um, we started this particular section a little more than a month ago in chapter 9. Um, we started with the account of the transfiguration of Christ, which where we saw just a glimpse of his glory on display. And then we see the healing of a boy that can only be done by praying, if you recall that. And then Jesus predicts his death for a second time. Uh, the first was actually at the end of chapter 8, uh, where Peter ends up rebuking him for that. And then we get this back and forth in different scenes, where either disciples or some other character or characters show up and they're doing something that requires some correction and or teaching from Jesus, and we see that as well. Just a very high-level flyover of those. And in 9.33, we see disciples discussing who might be the greatest among the 12 of them. And Jesus responds, of course, to their arrogance by telling them that they should be servants first of all, even to the children. And then we see John trying to stop someone outside of their group from casting out demons. And Jesus corrects him in this as well, saying, one who is not against us is for us. And then we see Jesus responding to a, quick, a trick question from the Pharisees concerning divorce that was taught a few weeks ago. We see him rebuking disciples for not letting children come to him. And then teaching that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And just last week, we saw Jesus challenging a rich young ruler who believes he will go to heaven for keeping the law, but then he refuses to sell his belongings and give them to the poor. So what are we seeing in these, these past chapters? Well, we're seeing faith and dis discipleship in action. We're seeing Jesus meeting his disciples where they are, showing them the errors of their thinking, their actions, and then correcting them through teaching and example. And we're going to get yet another taste of that here this morning. So let's read the text, uh, chapter 10, starting with, with, with uh, verse 32. <clears throat> and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. 
And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you, but whoever it would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. <clears throat> so the big question from, from this text really is, what do you want Jesus to do for you? <clears throat> so you probably noticed that we have three additional scenes presented here. It's sort of the preamble to the finale that we'll see in the last study of this section. Um, Bill, I think, is going to be doing that in a couple weeks. So where have Jesus and the disciples been over the course of the last two chapters? Well, they started in Capernaum in chapter 9. You, of course, recall that a lot of Mark's gospel takes place in Capernaum. It's kind of their home base, if you will. But at the beginning of chapter 10, they left there and went to Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Now in verse 32, the first scene of our text, Jesus is on the road going up to Jerusalem. And we see at the end of the chapter, he's in Jericho, which is all in the same general region. I redrew my map over there. It seems to get getting smaller every time I, I do it. People keep erasing it for some reason. <clears throat> but we're in, we're in Jericho. This is the same general region. It's obviously south of, of the Sea of Galilee in that, that region. And it's actually near the, the Dead Sea area. So we're explicitly told where Jesus and his followers are. And we know where his intended destination is. So a little bit about the region. This was hill country. Going up to Jerusalem from the area north of the Dead Sea in Jericho is literal truth. You notice I actually wrote the, uh, the verbiage there on a slant, you know, going up. Not, not really. I, I saw that when I came in, and I'm like, how did I do that? But that's the way it looks. So Jerusalem is actually 2,600 feet above sea level, but the area around Jericho, the Dead Sea area, is 840 feet below sea level, which I can't even picture that. 
So we're looking at a climb of 3,400 feet over the distance of just about 20 miles. So this was not an easy journey to Jerusalem. Um, I think of you know, me driving through Pennsylvania, right, my, my old stomping ground, and I think I mentioned the last time I taught that the highest mountain in Pennsylvania is like 3,200 feet. So I couldn't imagine walking 3,200 feet over 20 miles. That's, that's a task. We know from our previous studies in Mark that the source of a lot of the opposition that Jesus has faced so far was actually originating from the scribes, these teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem. We read this in 322 in chapter 7, verse 1. So it wasn't only a difficult journey to Jerusalem, it was dangerous for Jesus to even be there. But despite that, what do we see in verse 32? He was walking ahead of his disciples. He was leading them down the road. And we're told that the disciples were amazed by this. Jesus previously told them twice that the elders and the chief priests would reject him and that he would suffer and die by them. And yet there he is, leading them to that end. And there were more people than just the disciples following him. And the text tells us that these people were flat out afraid, right? They were scared. They almost certainly witnessed in person or heard about Jesus' confrontation with the elders and the chief priests. So they knew it might get messy once they went to Jerusalem. He was going into their territory, and they were likely waiting for him and preparing for his arrival. But just in case there was any doubt in the mind of the disciples at this time, what does Jesus do? Well, he pulls them aside. We've seen this a lot in Mark. And he proceeds to tell them exactly what's going to happen with regards to his impending death. Again, Jesus will first be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and then hand him over to the Gentiles. And then we see the most specific and graphic prediction yet from Jesus. He says he will be mocked, he will be spit on, he will be flogged, and eventually killed. And then we see the same prediction as in the other two, that on the third day he will rise, which is obviously the most encouraging portion of these predictions. And again, this is the third time the disciples heard this. So moving on to the next scene in the text, and the placement of of Jesus' third prediction of his death and resurrection mirrors a similar pattern in each of the previous predictions. We have the prediction, and in the very next scene, we see the disciples doing or saying something foolish. The first time is Peter in 831, if you recall this, right? He, he actually tries to put himself in a position of authority over Jesus, rebuking him for what he interprets as, as foolishness. And this draws out an even stronger rebuke from Jesus, calling Peter out as speaking the words of Satan, right? That was a pretty strong rebuke. The second time we mentioned, just just a bit ago, 931, where disciples were actually jockeying for a position, right? Discussing who might be the greatest among them. And Jesus' response here isn't a rebuke, but rather a moment of teaching. He sits down with them and explains that they should serve everyone first, and not worry about their greatness. So here we are a third time. And it's just James and John responding this time, but the extraordinary display of self-centeredness here is shocking, and and quite frankly, it's a bit jarring. They have the audacity 
to lead off with the statement, actually it's, it's more of a command, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They're asking for the figurative signature on the blank check. This isn't just self-serving, it's insensitive to Jesus. It's offensive to the other disciples. But Jesus doesn't rebuke them for this. Instead, he asks very politely, what do you want me to do for you? And their self-serving response, of course, is to sit in glory with Christ at the highest positions, one on his right and one on his left. And even though Jesus has been crystal clear about the suffering awaiting him in Jerusalem, the disciples, not just James and John, have not accepted this. We've seen this over and over again. It's almost like they have a selective hearing and are tuning out the hard-to-hear stuff. The only explanation for their response here, really, is that they still see the journey to Jerusalem as sort of a procession to glory. It's clear that they do not recognize and acknowledge him as, that they do recognize and acknowledge him as the Messiah, and perhaps even believe that in Jerusalem, he will in fact inherit the Messianic kingdom. But Jesus' response here comes from a place of love and understanding of the reality of these things. He tells them, you don't know what you're asking. And isn't this true of us as well a lot of times? Mm -hmm. How often do we ask for things that we don't completely understand, yet we think we have it all figured out, but here the disciples are quick to claim the benefits of God's kingdom. That's what they're interested in, but they're still slow to hear the costs of participating in it. And in verse 38, Jesus speaks about the cost as a cup and a baptism. In Scripture, a cup usually symbolizes something allotted by God. We know this. It can sometimes signify joy and prosperity. You know, my, my cup runneth over. But it more often signifies God's judgment and wrath. In Jesus' response here, the sense that's conveyed is that it's referring to Jesus' impending suffering and death, which are ordained and willed by God. And by leading the way to Jerusalem, where this is all going to go down, right, Jesus isn't deciding to do something as a course of action. Rather, he's fulfilling a role that is assigned to him. Much like the cup, the context of this passage attributes a similar sense to the use of baptism. The Greek word used here, baptizo, means, in a physical sense, to plunge, dip, or immerse. And in a metaphorical sense, to be overpowered and overwhelmed. Since Jesus is speaking of his actual death and not immersion, this is obviously a metaphor. In other passages of scripture like Psalm 42.7 and Isaiah 43.2, we see this metaphor of immersion described suffering as an overwhelming deluge, like standing in front of the biggest tidal wave you can imagine, just being overwhelmed by it. So Jesus is essentially asking James and John if they are willing to be overwhelmed with the immersion into suffering with which he is about to be overwhelmed. Remember, Jesus wasn't just beaten by the Roman soldiers and hung on a cross to die. He was crushed, literally overwhelmed by the deluge of sin that the Father cast upon him, our sin. 
But what about the use of baptism here? James Edwards writes that baptism expresses Jesus' solidarity with sinners and his willingness to bear their judgment before God. So the question that Jesus asks is rhetorical. Despite James and John's response, it requires a negative answer. And we'll get to that in just a bit. But for now, the brothers Zebedee, the sons of thunder, really think that they can emulate Jesus in matters pertaining to the cup and baptism. Jesus says that they will indeed drink a cup and undergo a baptism, but the sense of these metaphors is not the same as he used when referring to himself. Here, the same imagery refers to the persecutions that they will undergo as a consequence of following him. We saw this in verse 30 that was taught last week, actually. In fact, this statement by Jesus is often seen as a prediction of James and John's martyrdom. And we should sit here for just a minute to mention some important points. This is something Jeff mentioned in the teacher training. As we follow Christ, we also drink from the cup and are immersed in Christ's baptism of sacrifice and suffering as we follow him. But it is because he first suffered for us to spare us from drinking the cup of God's wrath. And as an ongoing symbol of this, the new covenant, to remind us of this truth, we regularly go to the Lord's table and drink from the cup that provides us with the strength to walk with him. And we'll do that this morning, as Jeff mentioned. And some, some passages to look up this afternoon when you have some time, Colossians 1, 24 through 26, uh, Philippians 1, 29 through 30, and 1 Peter 2, 20 through 24 are really good passages concerning that topic. So Jesus acknowledges that there are places of honor at his right and left, but he also states that these positions are not for him to grant. And he will not grant them to James and John. And the insinuation here is that despite their future suffering, they are not guaranteed places of honor. Because it is God who will grant these to those for whom it has been prepared. As we read at the end of verse 40. And this phrase, for whom it has been prepared surrenders the whole matter of rewards and glory to the hidden purpose of God. Therefore, the disciples and we should not follow Jesus because we know in advance what will happen, or because of what we hope to get. The fact that the disciples are following Jesus is determined solely by the fact that it is Jesus who is leading them. Let me say that again. The fact that we are following Jesus is determined by the fact that it is Jesus who is leading them, or us, if we're talking about us. So as we continue, we read that the other ten disciples find out about these future ambitions of James and John, and they become indignant. Now it's important to note here that this is not a righteous indignation from the other ten disciples. A righteous indignation is how Jesus responded to the disciples in, in 1014 when they were rebuking the children that people were bringing to him. Remember that from a few weeks ago? And when he saw them driving the children away, he was indignant and said, let the children come to me. That was a righteous thing to do. But the other 10 disciples were not upset with James and John for making such a self-serving, stupid request from Jesus. No, no, no. They were upset that they didn't think of it first. They're thinking, you know, these guys are trying to get ahead of us. 
we deserve prominent positions in the kingdom of God as well. I wish I would have thought about that earlier. And Jesus obviously sees what's going on here. And so he takes the opportunity to teach all of them an important lesson. And as we've seen over and over again in Mark, Jesus calls them to him. He takes the disciples aside and proceeds to teach them about the way things are in the world and as we know them to be. That the world practices leadership from a model of dominance, of authority, and the effective use of power and position. And I love how he phrases the start of this statement here. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This appears to be saying, in a sense, that those political rulers who have been delegated power by God, the only truly sovereign Lord. And the verbs used here, lord it over them, and exercise authority, are essentially describing tyranny, bringing people into subjection, subduing them, having mastery over them. Jesus is describing an oppressive domination, an unfair and cruel exercise of power for the personal gain of a few. All delegated by the sovereign God of creation. And he specifically calls these rulers out as Gentiles, and perhaps this is even a bit of foreshadowing to the Roman political establishment that will ultimately be putting him to death. A not-so-subtle reminder that the power that they are exercising to do that has been granted to them. But this way of ruling over people by dominating them and forcing them into submission Jesus teaches, shall not be among you, the disciples. The kingdom of God operates under a different set of values. The conventional expectations and structures are totally reversed. Whoever would be great must first be your servant. That's a bit of a turn from the world's way of thinking, right? But we heard this teaching previously in chapter 9, 34 and 35. The first must be last, and many who are first will be last, and the last first. But there's a stronger language being used here with servant and slave. The idea of being subordinate to someone else, taking orders from someone positioned over you, these are the values of the kingdom of God. Greatness means service. Prominence means working for the benefit of fellow believers. And again, we've heard this before. This is one of the things that's easy for us to take for granted because we hear it so much. But take a moment to think about how this thinking clashes with everything we know and understand about the workings of this world. This is radical teaching. It's an exact reversal of the values that are ingrained into our world economy. Jesus is essentially saying that true greatness is in service rather than power, prestige, and authority. And this idea is further amplified at the end of verse 44, where Jesus says, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. And a slave was, of course, and is considered the the lowest and least of all people, even inferior to a servant. For Jesus to say that a slave would be first And not just any slave, but a slave to all. This is as absurd as a camel going through the eye of a needle. 
We heard about that last week. It's total nonsense. But Jesus uses this illustration to show the desire for power and dominance focuses attention on self. And this kills love. And love, by its very nature, is focused not on self, but on others. And this was a reminder to the early believers, the original audience that Mark was writing to, and us, of course, here today. The Christian fellowship does not exist for their sake or our sake, but they exist for it. The disciple, the Christian leader, the congregation are all a part of this. One doesn't exist for the other. One doesn't belong to the other. And finally, in verse 45, the last verse in this scene, if you will, we read that what Jesus teaches here about service and self-sacrifice is not simply a principle of the kingdom of God, but a pattern of his own life that is transferable to his disciples. That is, that the disciples should adopt the posture of servants and slaves, not on the basis of ethical reasoning, but because it is the posture of the Son of Man. This way of life is the way of the Lord, and Jesus is the pattern and incarnation of this. He explains the reversal of values in the kingdom of God, in which leaders do not run, but serve, by pointing to his own mission where he says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And you just need to look around and see that this model of ministry cannot come from secular thinking but only from the way of Jesus. His way defies the logic of this world and its focus and fascination with dominance and control. And we see this expression of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. It's described as a human being who comes with the cloud of heaven before God, who gives him authority, glory, and sovereign power, and who is worshipped by all nations and receives an eternal kingdom. No one, I mean, no one would expect the exalted Son of Man to come as a lowly servant. And no one would expect that he would give his life as a ransom for many. We see this as plain as day, right? The disciples keep hearing this from Jesus' own mouth over and over again, but they aren't buying it. They don't want to hear it. It doesn't make any sense to them It's a completely foreign idea that has no grounding in their minds. So a little bit about this phrase, that he would give his life as a ransom for many. The Greek word for ransom, litron, L-Y-T-R-O-N, is used for sums of money paid to secure the freedom of prisoners of war, slaves, or debtors. And this word, I love this, is used throughout Scripture. It's used in Exodus as the redemption for a life that was forfeited. That is, if a man caused the death of another person in some way, he had the option of paying a ransom if one was imposed on his life. There's a similar usage in Numbers 8.17. It's even used to describe God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But there is a clear connection between ransom and atonement in these texts in Exodus 21.30, to be exact, in 30.12, and Numbers 35.31, where a ransom is paid for a life that is forfeited. Jesus' use of for many connotes substitution and benefit. 
The ransom payment is his life, the life of the Son of Man. Jesus gives his own life as the payment so that the many who are unable to pay themselves can be released and saved. That's right. So going back to verse 38, this is why James and John can't possibly drink the cup that Jesus will drink and undergo the fate that only Jesus must undergo because there is a ransom that needs to be paid and only Jesus can pay it. And the most distinctive role of Jesus the Son of Man is this, giving his, rans- giving his life as ransom. The initiative of his atoning work lies within himself as the Son of Man. He freely offers his life as the ransom price for all. And he is conscious of offering a payment to God that can be offered by no one else. So the ransom he offers in his life is not contingent on something outside of himself. The death of the Son of Man on behalf of the many is a sacrifice of obedience to God's will. It is a full expression of his love and a full satisfaction of God's justice. So now we come to the third and and final scene of our text. This is a unique story of healing among the Gospels in that it, it actually names the person that is being healed. The man's name, we're told, is Bartimaeus. And at the, the start of this morning's study, I mentioned this unit of teaching that we're, we're focused on this morning, in September as well, um, since September, has really been about faith and discipleship. So it's ironic then that this blind beggar seems to see Jesus much more clearly than the guys who've been following around all this time, and who have the usage of both of their eyes, as far as we know. This is also the final healing miracle that we'll see in Mark. It's also the final scene that we'll see before Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. It actually forms an inclusio with the healing of an unnamed blind man back at Bethsaida in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. So remember all the background information I, I went through at the intro? This healing at Bethsaida is kind of the left-hand bookend of the text. And this right-hand bookend of all those other events in the middle, that's an inclusio. Right? Okay, good. Which means all the stuff in the middle is about that time. Yes, thank you. Thank you for adding that. So this time, Jesus arrives to Jericho. This is likely the, the first or the last major step before he reaches Jerusalem. And he's still with his disciples, we're told. And a great crowd. And right away, we find out that there's a blind beggar, Bartimaeus, and he's sitting by the roadside. And we even find out who his father is. Actually, I found that this was actually included as a courtesy from Mark to the Gentile readers. Uh, Bartimaeus is translated son of Timaeus. But again, this is a first to be given this type of detail about someone who's being healed. And note the detail about his physical position. He's not included in the great crowd, and he's obviously not one of the disciples. He's not even on the road. He's on the side of the road. He's an outsider. And he was probably here because that's where the people were. Blind and lame people back then supported themselves through begging. And what better place to beg than on the side of a busy road where people were constantly passing through? So as he's sitting there on the side of the road, he was 
probably made aware from others around him that this Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And this statement has some serious overtones. The title, Son of David, is equivalent to Messiah to the Jews. Bartimaeus was calling Jesus the Messiah. He sees Jesus for who he is, and he knows that he can bring healing to him. This is another first. In the past, we've seen Jesus silence those that would even suggest that he was the Messiah. Most recently, he instructed the disciples to be silent after Peter declares him to be the Messiah in chapter 8, 29. And they have been. They've been silent. But here, it's not Jesus that's silencing Bartimaeus. It's the crowd that's around him. But their motive is not the same as Jesus' instruction to be silent. Jesus wanted to prevent people from premature and false confession. The crowd, on the other hand, wants to prevent people from coming to Jesus, right? We saw this in chapter 10 as well, where they were trying to keep the children away. We talked about that just a little bit ago. But these rebukes from the people are not keeping Bartimaeus silent. They actually seem to be encouraging him to be louder and more persistent. He's, he's desperate. He cries out all the more, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. Isn't that remarkable? What an illustration of the servanthood of Jesus. So it's not a high-ranking political figure on the road in front of him that's yelling at Jesus to do something. It's a lowly beggar on the side of the road. And Jesus asked those around him to call Bartimaeus to him. And we read that he threw off his cloak and sprang up and came to Jesus. He wasn't wasting any time, and he wasn't letting anything hold him back. The cloak that he was wearing was likely the most valuable thing that he owned. This was the shelter of a beggar. But for some reason, it was in the way of him getting to Jesus as quickly as possible. And so it had to be thrown off. And he didn't hesitate to do so. This action is a testament to this man's faith. And as he approaches Jesus, we see him asking a familiar question. A question we heard in our second scene this morning. The same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? But Bartimaeus responds much differently than the, the sons of thunder, doesn't he? They want glory. Bartimaeus wants his sight. He responds, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And there's an important detail here when you look at the Greek. Rabbi is actually Rabuni. And this word is never used in Jewish literature to reference humanity. It is frequently used, however, as an address to God, usually in prayer. Bartimaeus knew who Jesus was. And in knowing who he was, he doesn't ask for wealth or success or power or glory, but only that he might see. And this wouldn't be a big ask for someone who could already see. But for someone who can't see, this is a big deal. This is everything to him. And his words indicate that he expects an instantaneous and complete recovery of his sight. And I want to park on this idea a bit. It was clear to Bartimaeus what his needs were. He was a blind man. That's a huge burden. I, I couldn't imagine not having the ability to see. Any other sickness that might come into my life 
as a blind person would more than likely be overshadowed by the fact that I am first blind. And given the choice, it would be foolish to be cured of a common cold before blindness, right? My cold is gone, but I still can't see. James and John didn't know what their needs were. And in a sense, they were blind too. A different type of blindness, but blind nonetheless. Spiritually blind. Asking the Son of Man... Jesus, this man they've been spending all this time with, for glory unto themselves, not understanding any of what that means. But Jesus grants Bartimaeus his request. He tells him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And some translations use the words, your faith has healed you. And the Greek word that's used there for healed, which is sozo, also means saved. And so when we read on and see what happens next, the usage of this word here is entirely appropriate. Bartimaeus not only has his sight restored, he decides that he's going with Jesus. His way is now Jesus' way, and he starts following him. So going back to verse 46 where this passage started, Bartimaeus was on the side of the road. He was an outsider. He wasn't following Jesus. He had never met Jesus before, but he called out to him. And he understood his need, and he asked for Jesus to help him. And his life was transformed in more ways than one. He got off the side of the road, and now he's on the road following Jesus. He's an insider now. And this is what discipleship looks like, friends. This is what following Jesus looks like. It's not exalting ourselves like James and John. Rather, it's exalting the exalted one. So what do we want Jesus to do for us? Is our goal to be exalted or to bring glory to the only one worthy of exaltation? Are we willing to follow Jesus on the difficult journeys? So I I hope and pray that we understand the weight of that question appropriately. It seems really basic to us, right? But the influence of a fallen world on our hearts and minds, the the ingrained sin in our hearts complicates things. So I would encourage you to meditate on that question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? So may we call out to him for mercy. May we acknowledge his authority and come to him in faith. May we experience his healing and transformation of our lives as well. And may we follow him on the way of the cross.